1: Erlon, I will never forget it.
2: Ear Hustle, stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it.
1: Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts.
2: From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's show.
0: The hour for convening having arrived, all members will please take their seats, and the clerk will ring the bell.
2: Remembering longtime Georgia lawmaker David Roston, He died yesterday. Also, this hour, more than 60,000 Americans are expected to be diagnosed with pancreatic cancer this year. Now, we'll talk about symptoms, advances in treatment, and why an early diagnosis is critical. Plus, Atlanta's west side is and has been changing fast. We know that. And that's leading the Arthur M. Blank Family Foundation to rethink how to best support the residents. So we'll learn how the organization plans to adapt and potentially change some of its initiatives. All that's coming up, but first is, as mentioned, days after announcing he would not seek re-election as State House Speaker, David Ralston has died after an extended illness. He was elected to the Post back in 2010, and at his passing was the longest currently serving speaker in the country. Rostin was seen as running the state house in a steady manner and sometimes keeping the chamber's more extreme elements in check. He also oversaw bitter fights over abortion rights, transportation funding, and medical cannabis. And he was known for having respect from Republicans and Democrats. This past legislative session, Rostin made sure as a champion of mental health reform in Georgia that this measure would be passed into law.
0: There is no issue this session more important to me than this issue. I am tired of telling desperate and hurting families that we have no treatment options available in Georgia. Roston was a lawyer from Blue
2: Ridge. That's up in North Georgia. His work also included trying to bring improvements to rural parts of the state. Roston was 68 years old and again will have more about David Rostin later in the program. In other news, the city of Atlanta is setting aside $3.5 million to help small businesses in some of the area's most disadvantaged neighborhoods buy commercial property. Christopher Austin has more. Atlanta will give
3: loans of up to $200,000 to help small businesses deemed to be demonstrating growth potential. The businesses also need to be located in areas outlined by census data as low-income or federal opportunity zones. After 10 years of repayments on the loans, the businesses can apply to turn them into a grant. The Commercial Downpayment Assistance Loan Program is one of several similar programs for businesses in the city. This one was funded by $20 million from Wells Fargo. Christopher Alston, WABE News.
2: Georgia's ports are outperforming competitors around the country, according to officials. As we hear from Emily Jones, she reports that continued growth comes even as rising inflation slows trade. The Port of Savannah handled nearly 553,000 container
1: units in October, the second busiest month on record and an increase of more than 9 percent over the same time last year. The Georgia Ports Authority says much of the growth came from new customers, or existing customers, increasing the amount they trade in Savannah. It's part of a broader shift in the container trade. Most containers coming in and out of the U.S. still move through ports on the West Coast, but East Coast ports like Savannah are handling an increasing share. Ports continue to struggle with backlogs, but officials say ships waiting at anchor to come into the port of Savannah are trending downward. Bigger docking space opening next year is expected to help. Emily Jones, WABE
2: News, Savannah. And finally, the next few days will be pretty cold, if you didn't know already. So warming centers are open in Decab and Atlanta as these low temperatures are expected to stay below 30 degrees for the next couple of days. Now, the city of Atlanta center is located at the old Adamsville Recreation Center and is set to open at 8 each night through Sunday morning. And transportation will be provided to and from Atlanta's Warming Center from the Gateway Center for the Homeless Services, leaving at 8 p.m. and returning the next morning. Meanwhile, DeKalb County has four locations, so write this down, Fire Station 3 in Avondale Estates, Fire Station 4 in Ellenwood, Fire Station 6 in Atlanta, and the North DeKalb Senior Center. The center is open at 8 each night and are scheduled to remain open through Saturday morning. And also, if you can and see someone who could use a coat or jacket, please, by all means, offer it to them. This is Closer Look. We're back in a moment.
0: Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And
2: Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. On this day, Thursday, November 17th, it marks World Pancreatic Cancer Day. And November is actually Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month. Now, here in the United States, according to the American Cancer Society, they estimate about 62,000 people, about 32,000 men and 29,000 women will be diagnosed with that cancer. And of that number about 49,000 will die. Now, while it appears you're saying, wow, that's a low survival rate, but there are some incredible stories. And that's what we're going to focus on today, the positive. So let's welcome from the National Pancreatic Foundation patient advocate and cancer survivor, Barbara Washburn. Also, the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network volunteer and stage four pancreatic cancer survivor, Elise Tadeshi. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it.
4: Thank you for Thank- having us.
2: Thank you. Barbara, I want to start with you. When you as you rose this morning, you think about what this day represents, and maybe you think back on other days, but especially this day, when you think back to that moment you were given the diagnosis, can you take our listeners through that? Sure. Well, first off, I woke up this morning hopeful,
1: because we are making progress in mm-hmm. this fight. Um, going back to when I was diagnosed, I kind of took it better than I thought I would. It mm-hmm. was um, I was very blessed. Wonderful doctors. I was very calm about it. They answered all my questions. So I felt I was in good hands. Mm -hmm. And I was never really depressed. I'm not sure why, but I think I just naturally try to be hopeful.
2: What year was this, Barbara? It was
1: five years ago
2: now. Wow. Elise, what about you on this day and that moment for you?
4: Well, I got diagnosed... uh, January 5th 2012 so you kind I can never forget those dates mm-hmm. but um I remember I had I've been misdiagnosed for a really long time and so actually that day when I finally got a diagnosis it was kind of like okay now I know what's going on so mm-hmm. I had horrible horrible mid back pain and it just got worse and worse and I I would say being diagnosed was definitely incredibly scary however i also have so much hope too because i'm here still alive mm-hmm. and i've been cancer free for 10 years i mean yeah. went through a lot to get there but i also i think the biggest thing i have is that i want to give back and help others mm-hmm. because i think i've been given a gift and I, the survival rates um, have gotten better but they need to be a whole lot better
2: were you all given a survival timeline at least
4: yeah um my doctor told me that i had less than nine months to live crazy
1: barbara no i actually was told by uh, when they said yes it is cancer after the surgery that if i had to have cancer i had the best type yeah so i'm
4: going on that at least nine months who did you tell first well my sister was with me and then of course i we told my husband first um and then that a little bit later we had a, a conference call with my family and told them and you know, it's very emotional yeah. emotional uh call and you know my mom is hysterical but then my brother um was like well you're beating this i don't that's that's it there's no option no other option and at the time uh, my husband and I, our kids were in uh, kindergarten and second grade so i was just in that mindset of there's no way i'm leaving my boys and no one else is marrying my husband <laughs> <laughs> he's mine yeah <laughs> did you tell the kids we 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 basically we didn't really say the cancer word because they're so little yeah and um we we mostly said there's something inside of mommy that shouldn't be a mommy so i'm going to be taking a lot of medicine it's probably going to make me sick that sort of thing and then we did eventually tell them um but i think i i felt like i still was me i still lived my life i still went to their soccer games i tried i still worked um and i think that is a great part of going through it Mm -hmm. and barbara who Who were those first folks
2: that you had this conversation with
4: after you did that? My husband.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. My children are grown. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then I met with my grandchildren and told them. What was that conversation
2: like, Barbara?
1: Well, my oldest was in college, so we talked over the phone. She was a little concerned with it. but I approached it in a very optimistic way, and we were all, we're going to beat this. It's not a problem. And I think they were good with that. And then we all went on a trip together you before go? the surgery. San Diego.
2: Of all places. but yeah, Okay, San Diego's not bad. I'm not picking on San Diego. Send me an email. I love San Diego. <laughs> but that's where y'all went, huh? Yeah, we took yeah. a nice trip. Yeah. Let's talk about then the moment when you realized as you were going through your treatments that, you know what, maybe... Uh, Okay, I'm on the path of of beating this. Barbara, I'm gonna stay with you for a moment. What was you were optimistic? Both of you said you were, you were optimistic that, and and we've heard people say that that is key. You know, exactly. It's gonna be different for everybody, but that right. is key. But as you're taking the treatment, and you know, you you're getting better, obviously. Yes. Uh, unfortunately,
1: with me during right after I had surgery, I had a seizure. So, I was in ICU for a few days. Mm-hmm. It had damaged my liver when I fell. So, that really interfered with recuperating mm-hmm. as quickly as I was hoping to. My biggest problem after I got home was gaining strength, eating. Uh, often, we all have digestive issues. Mm-hmm. That was the biggest thing. And just trying to get your strength back. It's very difficult, and it took quite a few months.
2: Do you mind sharing the treatment? Like, what what would they do? I mean, you had the surgery, so what? I did not have to have chemotherapy. Really? Thank heaven, and I hope that
1: continues. Um, Mine was just really digestive and healing where I had fallen.
2: Okay. Elise, what about you? What was that treatment? If you you mind sharing what that process was.
4: Um, so for my treatment, I ended up doing, uh, 12 rounds of this chemo cocktail called Fulfarinox, There's four drugs in it. Pretty intense. The amazing thing is it just been FDA approved the year prior, so so thankful for that. Um, after that, I did, uh, radiation and chemo for, uh, 25 more rounds. Um, I got down to 89 pounds. Yeah. 89 pounds does not look good on anyone. Um, I ended up losing my hair, things like that. But, you know, I will tell you, it is what it is, and that was always kind of my attitude. Like, whatever, I don't care what I'd have to go through mm-hmm. as long as, like, I can come out on the other side. Um, and then um, I think when I started feeling like, hey, I think um, I think this is going okay, um, was when... I was doing radiation, and at that time, the there was a patient portal and I could see my numbers, mm-hmm. so there's a cancer um, indicator that is, it's called ca nineteen nine and I saw it go, sort of get closer to the normal range, and I was like, oh my gosh, Yeah. you know, so, um, but I always, I don't know, I just always had a positive attitude, because I used to think to myself that I didn't choose to get cancer or go through it, but I got to choose my attitude and I chose to be happy and if in fact I have nine months left to live, I'm going to make sure my kids have the best memories that I'm still there and they, it's not like poor mommy or, I still was my, I felt like I still was myself. Stage four. Yeah. Elise. It was all bad news. So initially it was stage four so it was obviously a seven centimeter tumor, it mm-hmm. huge. Um, it was uh, I had several like tons of lesions actually in my liver then there were some other spots spots in my chest spots in my lungs and then in addition to that the tumor was wrapped around my superior mesenteric artery so I remember my doctor telling me yeah surgery is not an option it's way far off he'd tell me that. I was like so am I ready for surgery every time I'd see him and he'd mm-hmm. go oh at least we're so far off um, but the chemotherapy works really well for me. Um, it actually almost put my tumor in half in the first um, uh, the first six rounds, and then the last six rounds it didn't work as well. Mm-hmm. But then it continued to get small. Was there ever? Do you know if there, anyone in your families had, can, had this type of cancer? There is no cancer in my entire family. At least, no one had pancreatic cancer. My sister had uh, breast cancer ten years prior. I did find out that I have a gene mutation called BRCA2, mm-hmm.
0: um,
4: which there's like, depending on what doctor you see, is like between a 6 and 10% chance of someone getting pancreatic cancer in their lifetime. So they told me that's what would give it to me. However, that's what would help me fight it because there's more uh, specific treatments for those mutations. Mm-hmm. She did the chemo. You just,
2: you had this surgery. I want to, Barbara, your symptoms, because I have some questions from listeners. They want to know about symptoms. And and listen, folks, we want to encourage you to obviously talk to your own primary care physician, obviously. But these these are your journeys. So, you know, what were your symptoms? That
1: is the main problem with diagnosing this. My symptoms were I had a backache, got a headache. I started losing weight. I'm a woman, losing weight is always like, yippee, I'm good for this.
0: Yeah.
1: Um,
2: but how did you, but you didn't feel good. Did you feel, how were you well, feeling? Like-
1: I was feeling all right. Really? It was, it, which is often the case. You don't realize that these symptoms can be there. We do know now that there is a direct connection with diabetes and pancreatic cancer. But at that point, I wasn't a diabetic. I have become one since the surgery, which is... Pretty mm-hmm. normal. Uh, another symptom is the um, you get headaches mm-hmm. and you can bloat or you have digestive issues. But none of it was anything that I thought was worrisome because yeah. these are things people have pretty much every day.
2: Were you one of the people who routinely had a yearly checkup? You'd go yes. to the doctor. Okay, yes. same with you, Elise. Yep, sure did.
1: They, my internist was very concerned about my liver enzyme counts because they were up, and that could be a a good hint mm-hmm. if you can get to a doctor, a gastroenterologist, or whoever that might be, to know that and to pursue it rather than
4: just ignore it. Mm. What were the symptoms for you, Elise? I had really intense mid-back pain, and it was... Um, it was just intense and it got worse and worse and worse. I also lost weight. Um, you know, I had some uh, digestive issues, like I, you know, sometimes have a little bit of heartburn and mm-hmm. things like that, but it wasn't so prevalent that I thought, oh, and I'm having trouble. I did get misdiagnosed for a long time. Um, misdiagnosed? So I was told, uh, so my doctor initially did uh, in an MRI without contrast. You really can't see your pancreas there. Mm-hmm. They told me I had a slightly bulging disc, so I ended up going through physical therapy, which didn't help. I did see end up seeing a pain management doctor and he's one that said, you know, I don't think you have a back issue going on. I think you have a gut issue. So made an appointment with a gastrointestinologist, um, where really they didn't see it as I mean it was kind of it all happened together. Mm-hmm. So um, my, I switched internal medicine doctors, and he did a CT scan with contrast. And lo and behold, he called me that night and said, "You have a, a very large mass or tumor on or near your pancreas." And then made me a, a, a an appointment with a surgical oncologist the next day. I was like, "Why? Why do we have a call? Why have we seen an co- oncologist?" Mm-hmm. So, um, you have to be your own best advocate that's what i want to talk about and that's yeah. a good part of this
2: conversation what do you want folks to know about being your 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 an advocate for yourself when you no one knows our bodies better than we do obviously correct and you know when something's not right and we we go to doctors because they they're the experts that's what they do right but what do you want folks to know about if you get something if it doesn't sound right not that you're just gonna you know go against your doctor but keep going Mm-hmm. Just go to another doctor,
1: get the answer you need, because it's not normal to have those symptoms
2: continuously. Yeah. And let's talk about now why you all do what
4: you do. Elise? I I feel like I've been given a gift. And sadly, and not sadly, um, I probably speak to five new people a week. Yeah. That um, are being diagnosed, and you know, I used to, th- and and I think a lot of doctors in the past have blown it off because I was younger, going, um, you know, having pancreatic cancer. But what I've seen is it it is getting younger and younger. Um, I know, and Barbara can you definitely speak to this that there are more vets coming back with pancreatic cancer, mm-hmm. and so there's actually a a fund that the DoD is funding for research for pancreatic cancer. Um, but there needs to be more research. And I would say, you know, I'm super passionate about this because I know that I've lost so many other fellow warriors. I mean, mm-hmm. just, it's, it's, it's way too often and it, ne- it needs to be better.
2: Barbara, you, you do this, you volunteer, you work. I
1: would like to think before my life is over, that in some way, I have helped to draw attention to it, to hopefully just simply find a detection. Early detection would be mm-hmm. so, so helpful, and it would save a lot of lives.
2: And we know within PANCAM, there are initiatives to bring awareness for black and, and African Americans in this, in this nation as well? No,
1: it's the Pancreas Foundation. The Pancreas Foundation, yes. okay.
2: which I'm really super okay. proud about.
1: I was very fortunate. I go to doctors. I don't have any hesitation with doctors. And when they, the foundation said they were going to start an African-American initiative, I was really pushy and said, would you do it in Atlanta?
2: Mm-hmm. Good for you.
1: Um, I felt we'd be the best pilot city. Mm-hmm. It's only been there for a few months, but we have made tremendous progress. Uh, we're working with a lot of different groups and it's extremely important and dear to my heart because the African American community is getting more and more cases, mm-hmm. and we all know there's the social stigma of doctors; yes, ma'am. they won't go to the doctor.
2: Education. There are a lot of a lot of socioeconomic barriers. There's a yes. there's a whole lot there.
1: There is a, a tremendous amount. So we've worked with um, John Robert Lewis Legacy Foundation mm-hmm. with. We work with them pretty close, um, going to clergy,
2: mm-hmm. um, so Because sometimes folks will listen to the pastor before they listen to the doctor. So if the pastor <laughs> exactly. tells you to to the doctor, you better go to the doctor. Exactly. I'm all for that.
1: <laughs> and I think that is, you know, if that's what it takes. So we're here to, uh, we'll get speakers to churches. We'll yeah. do anything that we can in order to try to, address this and we are doing some efforts with grady hospital which Good. is
2: i think will be really helpful and again that's the national pancreas foundation so yes. we'll have links to this oh wonderful on our website as well ladies as we begin to wrap up what do you want to say to folks out there who might have recently been diagnosed diagnosed know a family member or a loved one you know we know it's outcomes are going to be different for people we know that but what do you want to leave folks with i'll start with you barbara there's always hope. Um, if I could
1: hug you, I would. <laughs> be strong. There's always someone to talk to. We have a lot of different groups in the city that mm-hmm. you can reach out to. There's always someone there that will lift you up.
4: Mm. At least. I would say getting diagnosed, definitely be your own best advocate. Um, I do think that your attitude is just crucial to beating this for sure. Um, you can also reach out, you can reach out to pancan.org, mm-hmm. they have tons of patient services that are totally free. Um, one thing that's important is doing, um, um, they do molecular testing of people's tumor tissue and they can do it for free for them. Um, and that's really important because that can show you what kind of chemotherapy might be best for you. Okay. Um, they can help you find a doctor but it's wild it's sort of like in these in different patients i feel like sometimes we know more than a lot of the local doctors so definitely find a doctor that specializes in pancreatic cancer and uh-huh. you can beat it elise barbara thank you so much for coming in and
2: sharing your thank stories you. continue great health to you thank you so much thank you for
4: having me thank you all for what you're doing thank you so much
2: and you're listening to Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. This is what we know about Atlanta, right? It's this little city in a forest that has a lot of neighborhoods and communities, right? And our neighborhoods hold history and their own unique identity. And as we all know, many of these neighborhoods, well, they've changed or they're changing. Atlanta's west side is one that makes up many communities and neighborhoods. Think about Vine City, English Avenue, Mosley Park, Grove Park, Westview, I want y'all to stop saying Atlanta Upper West Side neighborhoods. I'm against it, so send me your emails. I don't care. And Danny agree with me, right? We'll talk about that in a moment. Meanwhile, the ever-changing West Side is leading the Arthur M. Blank Family Foundation to rethink how to best support those residents over there. And you may say, well, how? Huh? Well, let's ask Danny Shoy, Managing Director for the Arthur M. Blank Family Foundation's West Side Portfolio. I've known him for a few years. Welcome back. Last time we talked, you were with a different organization. <laughs>
5: Was so good to be with you, Rose. Yeah, how thank you, you, did- you for having me back.
2: All right. Before we get to the this big announcement, too, give us some background on what the foundation has been working on for the West Side these past several years.
5: Sure. So since in since its inception, really, since uh, our deep involvement on the West Side for the last eight years, the Blank Family Foundation and really the Blank family of businesses. It's Mm -hmm. not just the foundation, but it's also Atlanta United, Atlanta Falcons, Mm -hmm. uh, so many different business entities have uh, really been working on um, housing and education and economic development and housing. And uh, what I'm excited to share is that we, uh, earlier this year, went through a pretty extensive process talking to uh, partners and stakeholders and community about what the emerging needs were Uh, since we know the neighborhoods are not static and uh, people and neighborhoods change over time to really zero in in a laser-like way and focus. Um, And uh, I'm here to share with you today that Mm -hmm. what has come of that is that we are going to work to increase the economic mobility for our legacy residents in the English Avenue and Vine City neighborhoods uh, in the west side to ensure that they have viable choices and options to remain in their neighborhood as the neighborhood continues to
0: change.
2: Let me stop you there for a moment because I have I've been reporting on this for a number of years and and been immersed in that community and I've talked to folks who say what well, understand this, so many of the the residents, there's very few residents that own the properties. And that's been an issue because now I'm not just picking on developers, but developers are folks who come in and buy up those properties. So is this a significant percentage of, of folks that we're talking about here, Danny?
5: You're, you're spot on, Rose. So we know between both neighborhoods, English Avenue and Vine City, that there are approximately 7,100 residents. Uh, two-thirds of them are uh, at 60% of area median income or lower, mm-hmm. um, and only uh, about 5% of them or 350 residents are actual homeowners. So we're mm-hmm. talking about neighborhoods where there are a lot of renters, which is why in our new strategy, our focus on affordable housing will not only focus on permanent affordable Rental, but also permanently affordable home ownership because we'd like to see more uh, residents, particularly legacy residents, be homeowners because we know what home ownership means for economic prosperity.
2: Phase one of how you all going to do that because, as you know, the, what you're all, and I say this often to folks, what you can't control is the market. What you may not be able to control is the, the inventory. You know, so w- what's phase one of all this? Well.
5: So you're you're right. We can't control the market. We can we can mitigate it. I, I would say to you, oftentimes Rose, people want to stop the market and that's that's the wrong answer. We can't stop the market, but we can mitigate it and we can be good neighbors in the fact that we know that we influence the market. Mm-hmm. We absolutely influence the market years ago when the stadium was built. Um, certainly, I know people have asked me, what will the uh, World Cup in 2026 mean? So there are all these things that will happen. Uh, That can actually cause neighborhoods to be vibrant if we can work to make sure that everyone has equitable access to the opportunities and the things that come into the neighborhood as it changes.
2: So as this neighborhood's been changing, I I guess there was a tipping point for y'all in deciding that, hey, a new approach is needed because of these changes. So is it too, someone listening says, well, Danny, it sounds great, but maybe it might be too late. Do Do you have a strategic
5: plan here? So so we do have a plan, and our plan is to work closely with our partners on the ground, not just by the way in affordable housing, um, but also uh, our partners who can help us uh, work in the areas of financial security, because we know that they go hand in hand, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, for people to stay in the neighborhood, they have to have an affordable housing option, but then they also have to have a high-quality job that pays them a living wage for them to be able to afford to live in, in the community, so... I'm an idealist Rose and i and I won't say that it's too late. Um, I think we're getting in at a time where we can actually do a lot of good. Uh, so so I'm looking forward to our work and and how we attract others, other philanthropic organizations other or corporate organizations, um how we build capacity you mentioned earlier on about developers mm-hmm. and what i know is that oftentimes nonprofit developers not to pick on developers by the way but nonprofit developers often will lack the financial and social capital mm-hmm. to be able to operate in the market in in a way that uh for-profit developers can so so with all the work that we're doing we're going to work very intentionally in a way that centers uh equity and uh and and provides the best solution to something that's a decade decade long multi-decade long challenge
2: so here again, we have another initiative that requires what we call a public-private partnership, corporate, phil- philanthropic, all of the above. This Here we go again. If I had, I'd tell you, I've had a dollar for every time I said holistic approach. Woo, I could build my own affordable housing for some of y'all. So yeah. it takes this holistic approach. And you're starting with this, this $2.4 million in, in new grants, right? Yeah. So how, what is that earmarked for specifically? Can you give us some? specifics here because
5: I got emails already. I absolutely can. So you're right. 2.4 million. And I'm so glad, Rosa, you emphasize new grants. These are grants that were approved by the Blank Family Foundation board yesterday. Um, 1.9 million of that are are grants that will go to organizations that are working in affordable housing, again, rental and home ownership. So organizations like the Westside Future Fund. Mm -hmm. I'm excited about the historic project that we'll be supporting there uh, in uh, on, Sunset, um, uh, on Sunset and Echo, excuse me, the projects there um, that bring history because of the King family and the Jackson family and the Bond family and others that have lived there uh, in, in, on that street. Also working with uh, Enterprise Community Partners and the Atlanta Neighborhood Development Partnership um, for them to help us develop, really uh, plan and do some work while they're planning uh, to bring their wisdom, their expertise, their relationships, which are local, regional and national, so, to attract some federal dollars uh, to think about how we play in that space. Um, also, uh, $200,000 earmarked to an organization called On the Rise Financial Center, which I we been, know them York very
2: well.
0: Mm-hmm.
5: Good, good, good. Um, to continue to provide financial education and work with the Westside Future Fund to help ready residents for uh, uh, housing opportunities to help get them housed, and also to work with Westside Works, which is managed by an mm-hmm. organization called Career Rise to ensure that as our legacy residents are getting trained, that they actually are having some support to meet the barriers that often sometimes interfere with that workforce development training, things like transportation, childcare, and so forth. Um, The Atlanta Volunteer Lawyers Foundation to help Mm -hmm. prevent illegal eviction. Um, And last, but certainly not least, uh, some support to Chris 180, who's been a partner working with us uh, in the health space. And as we are gonna be more focused on the uh, affordable housing and the financial security as as uh, pathways to economic mobility. We want to responsibly uh, transition the health work that we have been supporting.
2: So, and Danny, based on everything that you've just said, and I want to go back so folks understand what we're talking about here, what you all, and I, and I hate to use the word up against, but again, to understand the plight of this community in the English English Avenue in Vine City, which is a historic, very important neighborhood in Atlanta, you said 7,100 Households, seventy-one hundred residents. I want 7, to be one hundred residents. Okay, 7100 residents. How many are own or in an ownership capacity?
5: Yeah, three hundred approximately three hundred and fifty homeowners, so about five percent.
2: What's that say to you?
5: Yeah, it it says to me that way too many uh, residents in in both communities, people, roles who look like you and I, have been unfortunately disconnected from the American from the American. <laughs> it says that. While talent is, and I know you've heard this before, our universal opportunity often isn't. Mm-hmm. And we know that there is a history um, that's not unique to Atlanta, um, that happens all across the country, that uh, causes people, particularly African-American people, to be left behind. Um, this work that we intend to do is restorative. And it, it's why we're excited about this $2.4 million in new grants. And I meant to say that earlier, this $2.4 million in new grants is part of a larger uh, uh grant making portfolio done this year that will total about five million for the year um and this 5 million is part of the 57 million that the blank mm-hmm. foundation has invested uh, on the west side since we
0: began working there eight years ago
2: is there and if i missed it forgive me but i want to make sure because as you know you mentioned chris 180 i know they do a lot with mental health services and you and i know right now that is an area that is great for- greatly needed and also when we talk about and i talked about this with the atlanta police chief yesterday in terms of dealing with conflict and how you know folks need to have those type of resources is that an area that also you all at the foundation are are going to be working working harder into that area in terms of mental health or or anything that deals with with so more social and, and kind of how we all live and work around each other
5: So I'm so glad that you asked that, Rose, because I know that we are talking specifically about the west side Mm -hmm. um, and and the foundation's commitment there, but the Blank Family Foundation has several other giving areas. So we're focused on things like uh, the environment, particularly looking at energy, Mm -hmm. uh, looking at democracy, looking at mental health and well-being, looking at youth development, which is the other portfolio that I actually manage. Um, and then we have things that are uh, that whole unique and, and uh, special interest to our founder um, and mental health and well-being actually evolved from there as a, as a passion and in interest of, of, of Arthur Blanks. Mm-hmm. Um, so the foundation at the end of the day is looking to um, really support and invest in opportunities that allow people to collectively thrive. And uh, any of those giving areas that I just mentioned to you, democracy, environment, mental health and well-being, you development are all areas of giving that will likely find or could likely find expression on the west side.
2: Mm-hmm. Now, and I know you've heard this too. Sometimes you know intentions are best, but sometimes it takes too long to get things implemented and get because folks are meeting, everybody's meeting, and, and and okay, we've got a plan. But you know, at the end of the day, it's like when do we get started? When do we start to see some things in
5: action here? So here's the beauty of that. We are building on work that we've been doing for the past eight years. So this is not new work for us. Uh, And and certainly I would not be naive to say that we know everybody in the community, know all aspects of the community, but there are certainly lessons that we've learned um, over the eight years, Uh, stakeholders um, who are trusted advisors. So we're gonna be building on work that's already done. and, And really this is an opportunity for us to focus. So in a way that we started really broadly eight years ago, um, we know that if we want to really drive impact and make a meaningful change, especially as time is not on our side, mm-hmm. because Atlanta is not going to become any more affordable, um, this is the time. And it's it's really a unique time, Rose, as we work even with, with the public sector, knowing that uh, Mayor Dickens is very committed over the next uh, four, maybe possibly seven years, uh, to, for, to for the city to produce 20,000 affordable units mm-hmm. uh, uh, of housing all across the city. Um, so, so this is actually, the timing is now, the timing is good.
2: And I want to also, cause I talked about this just the other day and it's, it's food equity being an issue as well. Um, and households having access to affordable quality food as well. Food and nutrition, is that also in your portfolio?
5: So, so we don't, we don't zero in on food and nutri- and nutrition specifically. And we know one of the trade-offs is when you want to have deep and profound impact, Uh, It means picking our slice of the pie, if you will, and Mm -hmm. going really deep instead of uh, really broad on a particular area. But we're hoping that the work that we will do on the West side, uh, and again, I'm not talking about all the foundation's work, but just specifically the West side, by being focused on affordable housing and financial security, that uh, we will create opportunities for others to leverage our work and for us to leverage others' work. Um, So we welcome and attract, whether it be, uh, corporate or other philanthropic organizations, um, other nonprofit organizations that are working locally, regionally or nationally to really work with us and partner with us to build on our work, to address in a real comprehensive way so many of, of the other issues that we know. Um, well, I mean, because
2: if folks if, if folks can't have access to and I'm not picking on you all here, what you're saying, if folks can't have access to healthy, quality food, you know, or they have to travel real far. And you and I know transportation can be an issue. So in other words, Danny, what I'm saying is you need to holler at some folks and get a farmer's market over on the west side.
5: <laughs> I, look, I, look, I like the idea. And, and I would say to you, uh, I, I would I would say to you, consider that once we do the affordable housing, because like you said, food is important, but Equally, if not as meaningfully important, is I have to have a place to live, right? I have to have a place, Rose, to keep that food and store that food. Yeah,
2: absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But the, oh, but for folks yeah. who already live over there and say, Danny, I got a house, but that's I right, need access right. to. Well, so,
5: well, those are the places where we can connect <laughs> them to others who are providing those services, because and, and you know, Rose, you yeah. and I both know that it, that that when you think about healthy neighborhoods and and healthy people. There are so many, there are mm-hmm. so many elements, right? And, and that's why I uh, lifted up a, a little bit uh, Mayor Dickens' commitment um, to developing, Not I mentioned the affordable units, but it's really to develop healthy and vibrant neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And, and where we mm-hmm. want to, again, be good neighbors are specifically in Vine City and English Avenue, the two um, contiguous neighborhoods that are closest to the stadium mm-hmm. uh, so that we can be, uh, again, a, a good neighbor and thoughtful neighbor um, to really center equity in what we see as immediate needs in a rapidly changing uh, environment, rapidly changing neighborhood. Absolutely.
2: It was one of the communities that we first went out to when this program started back in 2015. Danny Shore, you all are doing great work. Thank you so much. Managing Director for the Arthur M. Blank Family Foundation's West Side Portfolio. Thank you so much for what you all are doing to help so many households. We're going to stay on top of this.
5: Good. Please do, Rose. Please, you, please keep us honest. And I look forward to seeing you volunteer with us uh, on, uh, in the West Side, excuse me, and wish you and all your listening um, audience a very happy Thanksgiving. So much to give thanks for in this season. So thank you for your interest and your support of our work.
2: All right. Take care, Danny. Take care. A closer Look continues from WABE here in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. The sudden death of former Georgia House Speaker David Roston hit State Senator Steve Gooch especially hard. He represents the 51st District that includes Blue Ridge, and that's where Roston lived and worked as an attorney. Senator Gooch says he was proud to serve as Rauston's representative, proud to be his friend, and was in constant awe of his leadership.
0: He was able to bring people together, and he was able to find compromise and, and find that spirit of cooperation for the good of Georgia.
2: And Senator Gooch says Raulston's leadership style actually reminded him a lot of former House Speaker, the late Tom Murphy, and former Georgia Governor, late Zell Miller. Tributes from all sectors on the death of Raulston have been pouring in. I want to bring in WABE politics reporter Raul Bali with more. Raul,
3: welcome. Hey, Rose.
2: You know, it was just so interesting because you, we were just having this conversation but a couple of days ago, um, mm-hmm. and then I went back and was listening to the conversation I had with Speaker Rostin back in February. He was championing the mental health legislation, and here we are now um, talking about him in the past tense and his legacy. What comes to mind for you?
3: You know, maybe we're in the prisoner of the moment because it did happen this year, but I think it's, I think maybe in the end it's going to be. That mental health care reform and substance abuse services reform package because it's so big and and so much can still happen with that package it is it's a big deal and it may end up being one of his leading major accomplishments but you know obviously you also want to talk about you know the budget and, mm-hmm. and what he did uh, with I mean think about it when he came in um, in two thousand nine two thousand ten we were still um, dealing with the effects of, of that recession. Mm-hmm. The George state budget, I think that time was like $18 billion. And now you're looking at a $30 billion mm-hmm. budget. But I think th- the biggest legacy has to do with style and, 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 ha- and temperament and how he ran, you know, the house. Look, mm-hmm. you know, he was a strong conservative Republican. Mm-hmm. That's where he was on the issues but very much a moderating and a and a balancing approach to actually running the Georgia House of Representatives.
2: You know, so many tributes have been coming in from both sides of the aisle. Uh, Mayor Andre Dickens uh, issued a statement. Uh, what are you hearing?
3: You know, it's, it's always interesting to hear about the stories you didn't know or the mm-hmm. things that you didn't know. Um, State Representative Misha Maynor talking about, you know, when she had to deal with a stalker and— what, you know, not only the speaker, but the speaker's wife comforting her, and then they coming up with a plan of how to protect her. Mm -hmm. That's not a story that I had heard, or maybe other people knew, and I didn't know, but you're hearing that story. Um, Stacey Evans, uh, talking about how uh, she was going to miss the, uh, one of the votes on the controversial six-week abortion ban, Mm -hmm. and, um, or maybe a different abortion bill, I mean, correct myself, but she was also about to have a child, and he made sure that she was able to do a video. She talked about this on Twitter. Was able to do a video that was presented during the House debate. He, and again, this is these are two people on different sides of the mm-hmm. aisle. But she was talking about that on Twitter. These are the things that you're hearing um, with the passing of Speaker Ralston.
2: What about you? I mean, as politics reporters, you know, you all you, you have some you have great relationships with politicians, and then let's be clear to some that is like maybe not so great but um you've been around a long time that's my way of saying you're seasoned and a veteran. Um <laughs> uh, what are your memories of of David Rostin here?
3: I had a good relationship with him. I mean that's as as and and he was somebody that we could regularly interview and and you know what you could ask him questions that he may not have liked. I mean here in the past year asking him about Buckhead cityhood. Mm-hmm. Um not exactly the t- you know the topic but he would answer the question um and, and you could also follow up with him so uh, you know and and he would you know at times you know say we're going this way on something mm-hmm. or that way you could ask him questions and that's something important in the job that i do and that we do we're able to ask these questions uh, of lawmakers he may not like them mm-hmm. he may have pushed back on some of your questions but which is
2: fine you can push back but be, you Absolutely. know for me it's about being professional as well and respectful uh, yeah i tell folks all the time you can disagree you can not like the question i i'm doing my best to make sure it's fair and even mm-hmm. the conversations i had with him uh you know and there was some pushback but it was fair and i remember when this program started back in 2015 and dennis O'Hara was my co-host and the first thing we said was okay Dennis said, I'll get Speaker Austin and I said, okay, I'll talk to Stacey Abrams. And, and I also, over the years, have had opportunities to interview uh, Speaker Rostin and if you're professional and you're polite, I'm good with you.
3: <laughs> I mean, look, and the important thing is, look at how many respectful tributes you're hearing mm-hmm. from Democrats, from Republicans, even Republicans who didn't always agree with him, mm-hmm. um, from from members of the press, because, again... I think, again, we're not looking for special access or may, we're looking for the ability for us to ask questions. Mm-hmm. You answer those questions and a respectful relationship. That's all we ask for. And that is what we had with Speaker Ralston.
2: And Raul, as we begin to wrap up, obviously, when the legislators come back in January, be the environment and those first few, especially that first day, we're
3: so used to hearing the speaker with the bell, you know? I mean, Think about it. We're, we're not going to have Speaker Ralston. We're not going to have Calvin smiry mm-hmm. but he's still with us, obviously. Mm-hmm. It's That is just going to be such a different feel, you know, when the bell rings and, and you know, mm-hmm. uh, we start on January the 9th.
2: And, you know, hopefully for, you know, the other lawmakers, whether they're seasoned or whether they're new, the spirit of bipartisanship and the spirit of professionalism, somehow we'll, they could take that from David Roston. That's WAB, what for. yeah. WAB politics reporter Raul Bali, as always, I appreciate you taking the time. Always. That's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are LaShawn Hudson, Daniel Razel, and Pat St. Clair. Our engineers, Kevin Rinker. A reminder, let me know your thoughts on today's program or any other. You can always send an email, rose at wabe.org. And, of course, you know, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights again at 7 or online, wabe.org slash closer look. And we have a podcast, so there's no way you can miss any of this. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott.